Well, it is a privilege, yet once again, to be able to share with you all. Uh, I always appreciate it when I get calls from uh, Jim or somebody uh, inviting me to speak at Big Creek Presbyterian Church. You all are part of the special family of God here in Hannibal. And over the decades, my wife and I have enjoyed being part of your services when I'm able to come. Martha, I'm glad you could be with me today. Uh, one of the things that I have enjoyed over the years is checking the uh, worldwide plan for what is to be preached from pulpits literally around the world Sunday by Sunday. A lot of churches follow this, especially in the higher church tradition. Uh, many Presbyterian churches do across, across the world. Uh, a few Baptist churches do. Most of you know that I am from a Baptist background and taught for 32 years at Hannibal LaGrange University, a Baptist school. But uh, I have come to appreciate the fact that it is a good thing for churches around the world to focus on the same passage of Scripture, the same Scriptures, week by week, to, uh, because these are, first of all, carefully thought through. They are the Word of God, and anything from the Word of God can help us. Second, uh, they are designed week by week to remind us of the great truths of the Christian faith. They focus especially on the life of Jesus, but they remind us of passages in the Old and New Testament that uh, aid us in our living for the Lord. This particular Sunday is known as the Corpus Christi Sunday. If you're into Latin, and most good Americans are not, if you're a good American, you definitely won't be. But if you're an okay American, you might have studied a little bit of Latin. Corpus Christi is actually the phrase which means body of Christ. And uh, the, those who have put together the annual week-by-week uh, -week study of Scripture have said that it, it is a good idea once a year to focus on exactly what is meant by uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper. Where, why do Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper? And it turns out that there are passages in the Old Testament that help lead up to and provide a background for our understanding of the New Testament. And then there are passages in the New Testament that also focus on the Corpus Christi theme, the body of Christ, and particularly the elements of the Lord's Supper. So today, in keeping with this worldwide theme, I'd like for us to uh, look at this, especially from an Old Testament professor's perspective. Most of you know that I am, uh, that my doctorate is in the area of Old Testament, and I love the Old Testament, and I tend to see the New Testament as a footnote to the Old Testament. It's actually more than a footnote to the Old Testament. It's the, the, the peak and, and the crown of Scripture, the New Testament is. But it is very helpful for us to look at the Old Testament and to see how God started themes in the Old Testament, planted little tiny seeds that will become richly uh, bountiful passages of Scripture full of meaning in the New Testament. And when we focus on the Lord's uh, body, when we focus on the Lord's Supper or communion, uh, as some would call it in the Baptist tradition, we call it communion, uh, we look for the beginnings, first of all, of the bread. 
and the wine, or as Baptists would say, the bread and the grape juice. I think you all are more of a grape juice uh, congregation here as well, but uh, the bread and the wine as it was practiced in the first century. And when you, uh, when you go back that far in the story of the Lord's Supper, you really get to start on what in my version of the Bible is page two of the Bible. Because it is uh, actually in page, on page, well, you could start it from page one, where God created plants uh, that would fill the earth with beautiful green life. Here in northeast Missouri, we've had, uh, and, and I would say throughout the entire Midwest, we've had a little bit more challenge than usual. Uh, some would say more challenge than they've seen in their farming lifetime to make those green plants come out of the ground so that they can produce a rich crop. But God certainly did create a beautiful world full of, of plants, of life. And it, it was from that page one opening story when God created the plants that would create the food, that would create the bread, that the story of the Lord's Supper began. Those were created in a world without sin. God wanted all the plants to be used for the blessings of, of God. And so we see, actually, on page two of the, of the Bible, God's first command to humanity that would begin the story of God's uh, plan for food to be part of the blessing of, of humanity. Notice what it says there in chapter one of the book of Genesis, verse 29. In my version of the Bible, it says it this way. God, God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. Part of the, the beautiful blessing of God for humanity in that unspoiled world that at this time only had two human beings in it, Adam and Eve, part of that blessing was food. Food for all kinds of consumption. The Hebrew word there uh, that expresses food means anything that is consumed by the mouth. It could be that which is drunk or that which is uh, eaten as solid food. The larger story of the Bible is that human beings took these beautiful gifts of God and abused them. They did what God said not to do. And Genesis 3, you don't only have to flip to page 3 of my Bible, and maybe yours as well, to see how little time it took for human beings to pervert, mess up God's good plan for people. There in chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve, living in that sin-free, beautiful, verdant garden that God had made for them, filled with every good plant, for a uh, plant that was good for food and for drink, uh, for enjoyment of life, that there was in that garden one tree that uh, God said, as a love test to me, I'm going to let you eat anything you want to, but the best tree, the tree in the very center of the garden, I want you to give up eating from that one tree as a test of your love for me. I'm not saying it wouldn't be good. In fact, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I want you to, to uh, as, a, as a sign of respect and love for me, 
to give up the pleasure of eating from that one tree. And as long as you don't eat from that one tree, that'll be your way of telling me that you love me because I've asked you to give up that which is really good, the tree in the very center of the garden, uh, because I want you to think of something that's even better than the best plant that I've ever made. I want you to think of me. And I am even better for you than, that, than the pleasures you would get from that one tree. Eat anything else that you want to, but the best tree, give it up. To, and every time you don't eat from it, think about the fact that I'm better than the best that that tree could give you. For a while, Adam and Eve did just that. They, they enjoyed the fruits of all the other trees. They didn't even have to plant uh, because God said you can just eat from the trees if you want to. And so there was no real uh, sweaty labor for Adam. They just enjoyed the fruits that were just growing right there for the picking and consumption. But the day came, and uh, it was a tragic day, when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to do their thing and not God's thing. And so they went to the center of the garden. They looked at that tree that was standing there, so prominent, so proud, and they said, this is the day we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to show that we love ourselves more than we love God, that we are doing our thing. And so they consumed the fruit from the tree. Uh, they were tempted to do so by the devil, as it turns out, because the larger story of the Bible is that there are temptations to, to do our thing and the devil's thing and not God's thing, but never without consequences. And Adam and Eve did what they wanted to do. They showed that they loved themselves more than they loved God, they loved the pleasures of earth more than they loved the pleasure of fellowship with God. And so they ate from the forbidden tree. And there was a, a penalty to be given, attached to that act. The penalty uh, was distributed, first of all, to the snake, which was the representation, really the manifestation of Satan in the garden there. There was a penalty given to the woman, and there was a penalty to the man as well. And the story uh, that leads to the elements of the Lord's Supper took a step forward at this point. The curse of the ground. Chapter 3, on page 3 of my Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where God said to Adam, you will eat, by the, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it for you are dust and you will return to dust. Food which was meant to be a blessing now would be that which would sustain us until our death but a death that was sure and unavoidable was now a part of the life process. Food would sustain us but food would only last for so long. God would provide that food. He would cause it to grow from the ground. Later on in the story of the Old Testament, we'll see that when there was no food for the Israelites, for example, when they were on their journey to the Promised Land, leaving Egypt and on their way to Canaan, to the Promised Land, they lived, in an, uh, they lived for a time in the desert. 
the Sinai Desert and, uh, and associated wilderness, wildernesses where food could not grow. But in all of that, God provided food for the Israelites. So that we see, actually, in uh, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the uh, second of 39 books of the Old Testament, we see in Exodus 16 uh, these fascinating words. In a, in a land of death, certainly not the Garden of Eden, and not the riverbanks of the Nile River, as where the Israelites used to live in Egypt, but in a land of sand and 115 degree temperatures, very difficult environment, God still provided food for the Israelites. And uh, we read about this in uh, verses 2 through 15, which I'll not read all of them. Uh, they're in uh, the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. But we do see these words toward the end of the, uh, that passage in verse 13, about the middle of the 16th chapter. The Israelites, very hungry, in need of food. It says this, At evening quail came and covered the camp, uh, and in the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. The story of the Old Testament is a story of God creating, creating food for human beings. Food that was uh, there before there was ever a curse. Food that was there to be enjoyed. But following the curse uh, caused by the sin of humanity... Food would only be that which would sustain you until you died. It would be not enough to give you eternal life. It turns out there was another tree in the garden, by the way, the tree of life, that if you had consumed from that food, you would live forever. But humanity never got to eat from that tree. And so food now becomes that which just sustains you until the curse takes its fuller effect, until death comes. But we have a gracious God who provides the food. The farmers have to grow it, but God is the one who gives life and, and produce, ultimately. Uh, and, and yet that food has lost its luster. It's, it's just a temporary means of sticking around on the planet until we die, thanks to the curse. That good God can provide food even when there is no greenery, as he proved for the Israelites in one of the great miracles of the Old Testament, the provision of manna, the provision uh, day by day in a world of death in the Sinai Desert where the Israelites would still enjoy the food. But as Jesus pointed out in the New Testament, that food did not keep them from dying. It was food from heaven. It was food that gave the Israelites strength to do their work, but not to take away the curse of death. We think about the Corpus Christi Sunday, the body of Christ, and we know that Jesus uniquely did something uh, with the Lord's Supper that had, uh, that had never been done before. He instituted a, a meal 
based upon Jewish celebratory meals, where the Israelites now, who had placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and all of us who are non-Jews, who, play, who understand Jesus as our Savior and the, and the Messiah, would, every time they took from the bread and the other produce of the land, the wine, they would take this as a gift of food from heaven above, similar in some ways to the manna, but much greater than the manna of the Old Testament. Whether it's the food in the garden that Adam and Eve would eat in their last meal before they were kicked out of the garden, or the food that they would eat for all generations afterward, they and their descendants, or whether it be the food that came down from heaven, the manna, it was still all food that did not remove the curse that was placed on humanity. But when Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven, Jesus said something unique, something that stands out, something that's recorded only in one gospel in the New Testament, recorded in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. I'm going to take a moment to look at that. Now, I, I am an Old Testament guy, so I'm out of my environment here, so, uh, but I think I can handle this. Uh, John chapter 6 is in the middle of one of the great discourses, one of the great sermons that Jesus preached as he was talking to the Jews of his day. In my Bible, this section is entitled The Bread of Life. And Jesus will say this, and I'm going to start with uh, John chapter 6, verse 47. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. Jesus said, you remember how God gave you that food in the Old Testament? And you remember that marvelous miracle where food came down from heaven and appeared on the ground every morning that you needed, that your ancestors needed it. And that food sustained the Israelites. And in a world of death, it sustained them for a time, but it, it still did not take away the curse of death. Even with that miraculous food from heaven, in the Old Testament, they died. The story of the Bible is a story of lesser to greater, of promise and fulfillment. The gospel writers invite us to look back on these old stories and revisit them, stories that we grew up with, stories from the Torah, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, stories from the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, from the latter prophets and from the writings, all the 39 books of the Old Testament. The New Testament writers invite us to re-examine those stories of the Old Testament and to see that really what they are are stories that were designed to point to the ultimate story. They're little S-style stories that are designed to make us focus on the capital S story of the Bible the story of Jesus, the story of God becoming a human being and doing things at a higher level and at a more beautiful level than, could, than was ever possible before Jesus came.
Yes, God in the Old Testament was one who provided food. But it's, uh, it was food of temporary value. Y'all are going to be eating it, several of you are going to be eating it fiddlesticks today. And uh, we love to eat at fiddlesticks. It's good food. But I can tell you that food does not take away the curse that was uh, placed upon all human beings by, uh, by Adam and Eve's sin and them as representatives of all of us, the sin of all of us. Uh, but there is a food that you can consume uh, that is un unique from all other foods. And it's not even a food that uh, is... Well, it's a special kind of food, but it's a food that is only actuated through faith. Jesus says it's a, it's a kind of food that only works when it's accompanied by belief. It requires belief that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the ultimate bread of life who came down from heaven. And Jesus will go on to say there in these verses, um, the bread that I will give you, uh, well, in verse 51 of chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, there are actually cultures throughout history who have practiced the consumption of human flesh. And uh, when Jesus' words are taken at face value and not really the way he intended them, but the way a, a non-thinking person might uh, take them, uh, th these words could be very confusing. And the Jews uh, were arguing with Jesus when he made that outlandish statement, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As we continue in John chapter 6, this passage that deals with the bread of life, uh, in chapter 6, verse 52, after Jesus made that statement, I will give for the, uh, my flesh for the life of the world, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus then went and said this in verse 53. I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus was the greatest teacher in all of history, but he was not the easiest person to understand sometimes. In fact, he purposely told many of his greatest truths in the form of parables, puzzle sayings, sayings that, had, uh, that were odd stories, sometimes hard to understand, odd teachings, like this one right here, which if you don't take a lot of time to really think about them and, and 
work them through, maybe in discussion groups, you may not catch the main point that Jesus was making. What was Jesus really talking about right here when he said that I am the bread of life that came down from heaven and you must eat from me and you must even drink my blood if you're going to enjoy eternal life. If you're going to have the curse of death removed from you. It's going to take a very special kind of food. It's going to take something better and greater than the food that was grown in the Garden of Eden. It's going to take something greater than even that which came down from heaven as one of the greatest provisions of God in all of the Old Testament, in all of that entire era. Something greater than the garden food of Eden, something greater than the manna of the Sinai Desert, is going to be the only thing that can remove the curse. And it's me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, that's a puzzle saying. Jesus was not ordering Christians to become cannibals. That was not the point. He was saying something far greater and far more important than that. He was saying, you must believe in me. You must have faith in me. And when you trust in me as the one provision of God great enough to remove the curse of death, then you are now in me, and I am in you. It becomes a reality through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In the work of Jesus, who died for our sins, and more than that, who defeated death himself by going into hell and breaking the bonds and the, and the, and the chains of death, and then coming alive victoriously, on the third day out of the tomb there out on the outskirts of Jerusalem. This is the one who can break the curse of death. And our faith in him is how we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, in the long history of Christianity, uh, Jesus said, Jesus understood that it would be very helpful for those who have placed their faith in him also to remember the greatness of God's de defeat of death and his eternal life that would be gained by taking Jesus into ourselves through faith. And so Jesus gave us a very special meal. He gave us the Lord's Supper. John, and really all the gospel writers, did um, understand that to be such a special meal that they all told the story of Jesus and the Last Supper. All the early Christian community said that supper that Jesus gave the apostles the night before he uh, was arrested and died, the night he was arrested, the day before he died, was in fact the, uh, a meal that was to be shared by all Christians. And so the apostle Paul, for example, as the great apostle to the Gentiles, to most, if, not, if I'm a Gentile by background, maybe you are too, but to all Christians, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles said that meal that Jesus gave us that night before he died was a meal that was to be celebrated on a regular basis by Christians, but only for those who have, first of all, accepted Jesus spiritually into their lives through faith, who have spiritually eaten of the body and blood.
blood of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul gave some directions in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper. And he says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and this is literal bread. This is not just spiritual bread, symbolic bread of his body. Jesus took literal bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, and I might say resurrection also, until he comes. One of the great gifts of Christianity given to us in the pages of the New Testament is the gift of symbolic acts. Baptism is one of those great events. The Lord's Supper, though, is another one as well. It's a treasure given to us from the hands of Jesus himself. Jesus said, I want you spiritually to take me into yourself through faith. Believe in me. Believe that I am the Savior of the world. Believe that I am the removal of the curse because I defeat death. Um, and as you place your faith in me, you too will become an overcomer. You too will, will experience the gift of eternal life. But to remind yourself of what you have done by believing in me and spiritually consuming me, uh, I want you also to remember in a symbol, a symbolic act, I want you to eat physical bread during part of your, your worship service and to drink the wine or the grape juice, the product of the, of the grape, as part of that worship service as well. And these will remind you of the, the true food that will fit you for heaven, the gift of me and my work, which can be living inside of you and give you the gift of eternal life. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, and your church does that periodically. Some churches do it every Sunday um, to remind every person who comes that mere food will produce only death. Even if it's food grown in the Garden of Eden, even if it's food that comes down from heaven, physical food will not give you eternal life. It will not undo the curse. But there is a bread, a bread that is actually the, uh, the work of Jesus Christ in giving his life for us. That if you, through faith, be, uh, take Jesus into your body, into your life, you will never die. And the curse of death through, the, through Jesus, the true bread of life, will miraculously, as a divine work of God, take the curse of death away. But we will remember that on a regular basis every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Will merely eating a piece of bread as part of a worship service give you eternal life? Drinking a little cup, a very small amount of liquid, give you eternal life? No, it will not. But they can point to the great truth. And the great truth is, the greatest truth of all of human history is, if you bring Jesus into your life through faith, 
you will have eternal life. These are great reminders, and they're great uh, inspirations to many people to the greatest truth of all. Jesus is our life. Amen.